Saith my Lord and King, oh be ye reconciled to God. Let's go to Matthew 16 to begin tonight. We're studying the New Testament in 12 verses, and we gave an outline of the New Testament last night. 4, 1, 21, 1, four biography books, one history book, 21 letters, one book of prophecy. I had preached a long time before I discovered that the order of the New Testament books matches God's plan for saving man. What does a person who is estranged from God first need to do to become reconciled to God, as we just sang? He needs to he needs to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. What are the first four books of the New Testament about? Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in, the, in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. John 20, 30 and 31. So those first four books are about believing in Jesus, not as a man, not just as a historical character, but as the divine Son of God. And we have ample information there to make an educated decision about whether Jesus is who He claimed to be. And we have the eyewitness testimony of two of His disciples in those four books, Matthew and John. And John was in the inner circle of the apostles. There are only three in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And so we have his bird's eye view, his up-close information about Jesus. He later wrote 1 John. He began that book by talking about having seen, heard, gazed upon, or studied and touched or handled the Word of Life or the Son of God. So we have eyewitness information that we can make a decision about who Jesus was. And John 1, 11 and 12 says that when we believe in Jesus, we have power to become sons of God. We do not become sons of God when we mentally assent that Jesus is the Christ, the Son, of, the Son of God, but we have power to become. What is the second thing that a person needs to do in order to be right with God? Well, he needs to obey the gospel. He needs to be rid of his sins. What is the second section of the New Testament about? You come to the book of Acts, which is a book of history, but it is also a record of conversions, nine conversions to Christ, Demo different demographics specially chosen by the Holy Spirit. And you can find yourself among those nine or a combination of the nine. We have religious people. We have unreligious people, men and women. We have those who had a lot of knowledge prior to that and no knowledge prior to it. So we have the, the New Testament laid out, belief in Jesus, obey the gospel. But what does that mean, obey the gospel? Well, we're going to study that when we get to Acts 2 in, in a few minutes. So I'll hold that to that point in our study. Then after a person becomes a Christian, what do they need to know in order to be right with God, stay right with God, go to heaven? Well, they need to, ha need to know how to worship God and how to live for God. What are the 21 letters about? about how to live, how to behave ourselves in the church of God, 1 Timothy 3.15. 3, that doesn't mean how to behave ourselves in a church building. 
although what goes on in here is important and we ought to behave ourselves correctly in here, but that's just talking about the church of God as we go about everyday life. Because we are the church. When we go to work, when we go home, when we go into our communities, when we go overseas, wherever it is, we, we represent Christ. And those, those books teach us how to live. And then the last book of the New Testament, that last section, the book of Revelation, what is it that we need to know as, as we've gone through the Christian life, we believe in Jesus, became a Christian, have lived the Christian life, and now we're at the end of the way. Don't we need assurance that there's more to life and what you see here, that there is a life beyond this life. And what's the book of Revelation about? I remember hearing Johnny Ramsey preach. I'm sure you heard, many of you have heard Brother Ramsey. And he used to preach a lot on Revelation. And he would say, the theme of Revelation is, if you overcome, you get to come over and live with me. And that's what the book is about being faithful, and that ultimate reward that we will have after this life in the next world. So the New Testament is perfectly arranged so that a person who knew nothing about God, about Jesus, could just read it with a good heart, Luke 8, 15, come to understand it, implement it in his, his or her own life, and go to heaven. Now we're talking about 12 verses. And those 12 verses cover four major subjects of the New Testament. Last night we studied Jesus and there were four verses related to His incarnation, salvation, crucifixion, and resurrection. Tonight we pick up in Matthew 16, two verses about the church. Let's read in this, um, beginning in Matthew 16, I think I'll start in 17, but let me set the stage just a little bit before we read. Here you have Jesus on what we would call a retreat with His disciples. They've gone to Caesarea Philippi. They're out away from the crowds and the cities and the busyness that they're constantly uh, engaged in with healing people and teaching and so forth. And he's out there coaching them, teaching them, mentoring them about things they will need to know because at this point, he's only six months away from the crucifixion. And he's going to leave them. And for the first time in this chapter, he reveals that fact to them. Now, he had hinted at it before. Chapter 12, for instance, 39 and 40, the Son of Man would have to be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights, like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, three nights. But, but they didn't, probably didn't really understand what that meant because that was veiled. It wasn't detailed. But here he says, I have to go to Jerusalem. I have to be persecuted by my enemies or the rulers, executed, and I'll come back the third day. And that's specific. So he's, he's preparing them for that on this retreat. Now, they, uh, since, since you're only six months from the crucifixion, then they have been with him about three years at this point. The personal ministry of Jesus, judging from the Passovers mentioned in the book of John, lasted between three and three and a half years. And so here Jesus is with them. They've had enough time to observe His character, to hear His words, to see His mighty deeds, to see Him under all different circumstances, under pressure, when He's tired, and so forth. So they, they can answer this question not just 
uh, on the surface, but they can answer it from their observations. So he asked the question beginning in verse 13, whom do men say that I the Son of Man am? In other words, what, what are people saying about me? What's my reputation? And they said, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. Now John died in chapter 14 of Matthew. Herod, you know, beheaded him because his wife insisted that he do it. Well, some say you're Elijah. Elijah had been gone 750 years by this point. Or Jeremiah, not quite that long, but centuries. Or one of the prophets. So they were observing different things about Jesus and saying, he reminds me of John. John was a powerful preacher and the cities emptied to go out in the wilderness to hear him preach and he baptized all those people. And so that some were reminded of John and said, he's come back from the dead. Others said, he reminds me of what I've read about Elijah. What a rugged individual. What a man of courage. Others said, he's like Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. And so they saw his compassion. They saw him take the little children in his arms and say, except you become as a little child, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Maybe they had seen him at his friend Lazarus' grave weeping. Or weeping over the city of Jerusalem, Luke 19, 41, John 11. But none of that impressed Jesus. You know, if, if you compared any of us to a prophet, we would we'd say, that. thank you, that's, that's quite a compliment. No, that's not what Jesus, he said, mm, but whom say ye that I am? Now, Peter often, you know, he's called the, the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth because he often said the wrong thing. But this is an occasion when he said the right thing. He said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, we may think of Jesus Christ as first and last name. Now, we're used to having, you know, referring to people in that way. But Jesus was his name. Christ was his title, Christos, Messiah. And so everybody agreed that he was Jesus, but not everybody agreed that he was Christ. His disciples said he's Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. His enemies said he's Jesus, but not Christ. They didn't believe that he was who he claimed to be. But Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, there's only been one son of the living God in the sense that Jesus was his son. Now all of us are sons and daughters of God, but not in the same sense. You see, Jesus was born of the Virgin of Mary, so he was human, but he was the son of God. He also was divine because he was not, he was not made as we are with male and female coming together. He was made with a vir by a virgin and God causing him to be implanted in her womb and coming forth those 36 or 40 weeks later as a babe in arms and then a toddler and then a child and then a teenager and then the man who was talking to them. Now with that background, let's read what, how Jesus responded to Peter's confession. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. This word blessed is a, is a superlative word. It means super blessed. The, the height of blessing. Blessed art thou, Simon 
that's, that's his given name, Bar-Jonah. Bar is a prefix, an Aramaic prefix meaning son. Jonah, son, son of Jonah, or perhaps son of John. This, the, uh, the Bar and Ben are the same, are the same word. Ben, mean, ben is the Hebrew word for son, and Bar is the Aramaic word for son. For flesh and blood hath not revealed unto thee. You know, these, these people who have their opinions of Jesus, they're guessing. They're reasoning about it. They're trying to figure it out. Jesus said, that's not how you came to your information, but my Father which is in heaven. This is revealed information that you are confessing that's, that is reliable. And so in verse 18, and this is the fifth of our 12 verses, verse 18. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now let's go back and focus on the words carefully and see some ideas, some key ideas from these verses, and we'll move to our next one. I say also unto thee, thou art Peter. There are some who say that the church is founded upon, upon Peter, and they will use this verse as evidence of that. But this verse never taught that, doesn't teach it tonight. The word Peter and the word uh, upon this rock, the word rock, are in the same word family, but they don't mean the same thing. The word Peter, Petra, means a small stone, a pebble, something to be held in the hand. The word rock means a foundation stone, a side of a mountain, a large stone that could not be carried. Thou art Peter, that's masculine, Petra. And upon this rock, that's feminine. So it doesn't refer to the same. It's not, he's not saying I'm going to build my church upon my disciple, Peter. What he's saying is I'm going to build my church upon the confession that you just made that I am the Son of God. That's the foundation of the church. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid. Well, what foundation is that? Jesus the Christ. So you have that uh, key fact in the beginning of this, but also notice, uh, <clears throat> and upon this rock I will build my, well, let's look at the verb tense first. I will build. What, what tense is that? That's future tense. That implies that it was not already in existence when Jesus made this statement. Now there are large religious groups who differ on when the church was established. Some say it was established in the days of John the Baptist. As we've already mentioned, he was dead by this time. Some say it was established as far back as the Garden of Eden. You don't come to those conclusions by careful study of Scripture. Scripture said, Jesus said, six months prior to his crucifixion, I will build my church. It's yet to come. When John the Baptist stepped out of the wilderness and began to preach, Matthew 3, and Jesus uh, echoed the same sentiment when he began to preach, Matthew 4, 17, he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is nigh. It's near. It's about to happen. You see, they had four, 
hundred silent years before this, no prophet between Malachi and Matthew. And now God sends a prophet and says, the kingdom of heaven, what kingdom of heaven? The kingdom the Old Testament had prophesied and taught about like in the book of Daniel, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 9, where you have this repeated vision and different, you know, it's a statue in chapter 2, it's four beasts in chapter 7, it's the, the feast of, or the, uh, the prophecy of the weeks, the 70 weeks in chapter 9. But they all point to the same thing. That in the days of these kings, what kings? The Roman kings. Shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Well, when John steps out of the wilderness, when Jesus begins to preach, who is reigning on the throne but a Caesar in the days of the Roman king? So it fits. It wasn't established prior to that. And Jesus says, it's about to be established, but not yet. I will build. Now notice the number of the noun. This is not an English lesson tonight, but understanding words is important to understanding the mind of God because it's revealed to us in words. And every word is precious and every word is inspired and we ought to know and trust every word. Thou art Peter upon this rock, I will build my church, singular in number. It's possessive. The, the pronoun my refers back to what antecedent? Jesus. So here you have Jesus saying, I, the Son of God, will build my church. It will belong to me. How many churches did he promise to build? My church, not my churches. I know there are men who have started churches. But there was never one who started one with the authority from God to do it. Matthew 28, 18 says, when Jesus, right before we went back to heaven, all authority hath been given to me in heaven and in earth. May I ask a simple question? What authority does that not include? He has all authority on earth. And he has all authority in heaven. What other place is there? You see, Jesus is king of the world. And Jesus never gave authority to any human to start a rival church to the one that he promised to build in Matthew 16, 18. And in fact, the rest of the New Testament shows, well, you even could go back to the prophecies. One was prophesied. One was promised here. One was uh, built in Acts 2, which we'll study. One was talked about in the New Testament. For instance, Ephesians 4.4 4, in the list of the seven ones, the unifiers of the church. He says there is one body, but what's the body? He had already identified the body in chapter 1 of Ephesians 22 and 23. Head over all things to the church, which is his body. So if there's one body and the body is equal to the church, then how many churches are there? The same as the number of the noun in Matthew 16, 18, my church. I will build my church in the gates of hell. That's the word Hades shall not prevail against it. In the immediate context, what he's talking about is what he's about to tell his disciples, that he's going to die. The definition of death is a separation of the soul from the body. So Jesus' limp body was taken down from the cross and laid in the borrowed tomb. What did not go in that tomb with him? Well, we know that because of James 2, 26. Separation of body from soul is death. 
So if the body went in the tomb, the soul didn't. Where'd the soul go? Hades. Now, Hades is not the bad place. I know it is in literature, but not in scripture. The word Hades simply is a word that means the unseen world. We can't see beyond the veil. We can't see into that next world where the soul goes with physical eyes. But we see it by faith because scripture tells us that there's, it has a bad compartment and it has a good compartment. You know, when Jesus, we mentioned last night, said to the thief on the cross, one of the thieves on the cross beside him, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. That's the good part. It's, un, it's a part of Hades, the unseen world. It's a good part. It's also called Abraham's bosom in Luke 16. Also has a bad part. You know, in that Luke 16, uh, when Jesus talked about the rich man of Lazarus, Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. That was the good part. Same place Jesus went. But the rich man lifted up his eyes being in torments. And that was prior to Gehenna, the final resting place of the wicked after the judgment. We know that because he still had five brothers that were on the earth that he wanted Lazarus to go back and try to persuade not to go where he was. So we know the earth hadn't been burned up at that point as it will be prior to the judgment, 2 Peter 3, 1 through 9. That's the first application is that Jesus was going to die. And no doubt Satan and the demons rejoiced when they saw that tomb roll over that grave with Jesus' body inside. Their victory was won. He's dead. We finally rid of him. But their rejoicing was short-lived because Sunday morning the tomb was found empty. He wasn't there. He is raised from the dead, alive, never to die again. See, the gates of hell, the grave, could not keep him. That's why we have hope tonight. That's the first application or meaning of that text. But it also refers to the fact that the devil will never beat the church. You know the prophecy we mentioned in Daniel 2.44? It's an everlasting kingdom. Well, for that to be true, the devil could never defeat it in any Whenever Jesus comes back, it will be here and he will deliver it up to the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Let's go to our next, next text, which is Acts 2, 38. Acts 2, 38. We're still talking about the church, just two verses on the church. The first one was the promise to build it. The second one is how to get in it. Acts 2. I wish I had time to to do some Bible marking with you tonight, but we won't be able to take time to do that. Uh, if, if anybody wants to, after service tonight, on the front page of Acts in my Bible, I've got uh, six facts about the church, and it really opens up the book of Acts. You could take a picture of your, your phone and transfer it to your Bible if you want to do that. We would do it, but we won't have time. Look at Acts 2.38, and this is... Um, a red letter day on God's calendar, that great and notable day of the Lord. And the Holy Spirit has come from heaven to earth. He has been poured out on all flesh or the beginning of that pouring out on the Jews in Acts 2. It will be completed in, on the Gentiles in Acts 10. You could do a whole series of sermons, of course, in Acts 2, so we'll just have to skip ahead. And uh, get right to the point, which is verse 38. That's our sixth verse of the list of 12. And Peter has preached to the, this crowd of Jews who are there for a Jewish feast 
The word Pentecost, which is the name of the feast in Acts 2, means 50th. The reason for that name was because it, also, it always came the morning after the seventh Sabbath past Passover. That's a mouthful. I'll say it again. It always, okay, let's do it a different way. So here with, with my body language, Jesus died on what Jewish feast day? Passover, right? Seven weeks later, the seventh Sabbath. What, what day Saturday? Well, <laughs> what day of Sabbath? I just said it, Saturday. So Saturday, Leviticus 23, 16 says it's the morning after. What day would that be? Sunday. How do you know? How, why do we worship on Sunday? It's when the church started. And one of the Jewish feasts was on that day, and it's Pentecost. That's the one it started on. So the Holy Spirit comes down, inspires the apostles. They speak in other tongues, not ecstatic languages nobody can understand, other tongues. You can follow it through the context, languages. Because you had people listed from 14 different nations, they didn't all speak Hebrew. And so you had Thomas or Philip or, you know, different ones speaking different languages. And you'd listen and figure out which one you could understand. And you would, of course, would gravitate to listen to the gospel being preached by that man. Peter's sermon's the only one recorded. They all preached. And Peter, and I assume the others preached the same sermon. But here you have Peter's sermon recorded. And his theme was, you killed the wrong man. Ye by wicked hands have taken and crucified the Lord of glory, Acts 2.22. Because those people that were there on Pentecost were some of the same people that were there on the day of Passover. And when Pilate said, what then should I do with Jesus? They said, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be on us and on our children. Now Peter stands up and says, oh, about that. He was the son of God. You lifted up your voice to kill him. And then he proves it by quoting from their Bible, Joel 2, other passages about, about David. And they were pricked in their heart. Well, what does that mean? Have you ever been in a sermon, I suppose we all have, where the preacher just really stepped on, stepped on your toes? I mean, he... He just seemed like he just knew exactly what verses to talk about that applied directly to challenges or sins in my life. And it just convicted. I just, I felt so wrong and so guilty and so, I wanted to, I wanted to be clean. You felt that way. That's how they felt. They were stuck in their heart like a, a needle pricked in their heart. And they cried out and they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. You can read along with me in your Bible. This is verse 38. This is our key verse. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We're going to come back to that verse, but let's skip ahead and see what response they gave to it. He continued to exhort them with many other words. And then in verse 41, it says 3,000 of them. Can you imagine 3,000 people coming forward to a sermon? Wow. How many people were there? 
Um, many more than that, but 3,000 of them responded. Incidentally, when the law was given in the Old Testament, 3,000 people died because they sinned, you remember, while Moses was up on the mountain. When the New Testament law was given, 3,000 people were made alive. Isn't that beautiful? It's the Feast of Harvest, and 3,000 are harvesting. Well, 3,000 obeyed the gospel. They, they were baptized. That's in verse 41. Uh, it says, with many other words to testify and exhort, verse 40, verse 41, they that gladly received his word. And that's what we're hoping is going to happen here tonight, or tomorrow night, or soon, is that people will gladly receive the word and be saved. Oh, that's what preaching is all about. So we'll talk about tomorrow night. What, what, don't, don't read the Bible and miss the point, you know. Uh, 41. And the same day were they added unto them about 3,000 souls. Well, who's the them? Well, that's in italics in King James. No doubt it refers to the apostles who were not baptized on this occasion. Perhaps those that were baptized under John's baptism. But verse 47 is what we're building to. <clears throat> Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the, that's the first time the word church is used in the New Testament in the present tense. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. That's the first time that word's used in the New Testament. But here's the first time the word is used in the New Testament as, a, as an existing entity. They were added to the church. You can't be added to something that doesn't exist. So they were added to the church. So this is the birthday chapter of the church, Acts 2, birthday of the church. Now, how did they get in the church? Well, let's go back to verse 38. What did Peter say when they said, uh, men and brethren, what, when they asked men and brethren, what shall we do? He said, repent and be baptized. Repent means, <laughs> I have a note in my Bible. I noticed this, I was reading through my notes today. And uh, Brother Marshall Keeble, great evangelist, baptized 40,000 people. He used to preach in Acts 2.38. And you know what he, he, how he would define repentance? Quit your meanness. <laughs> that's, that's what the uh, word repent means. I mean, that's pretty plain language. It, it means uh, to have a change of mind that produces a change of behavior. Repent. You haven't been believing in Jesus, believe in Him. You've been fighting against the purposes of God, embrace them. So change your mind. And when it comes to any particular sin, let's say I've been drinking alcohol, well now that I, I've repented of that, I, I pour it down, pour the, you know, the rest of the six pack down the drain and throw the bottles away and I don't buy any more. You know, I repented of that. Repent and be baptized. We're in baptism in the New Testament just means to be immersed, to dip, to plunge, to submerge. It's not even a Bible word originally. You find it in uh, recipes. For instance, there's a pickle recipe they, they found somewhere. You're supposed to baptize the pickles overnight. You know, soak them in some remedy before they, you make them into whatever you do with them the next day. It's a, it was used in a, in a historical context of a navy. One ship baptized the other ship. <laughs> it went down. That's what it means. It doesn't. And really it makes sense because Romans 6 says that we are reenacting the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. 
Jesus didn't have a little dirt sprinkled on him or poured on him, did he? He was encased in the tomb. So we died of sin, we're buried in water, we're resurrected, walking in Jesus' life. Now, the purpose of it. For the remission of sins. And they put me a clock back there. You know, I'm really glad to have a clock. But I can't see the hands, so it doesn't do a whole lot of good. Uh, I may have to, you know, walk part way down the aisle and I'll see it. I could see, I could see it until it gets up in the shadows. So we got about 18 minutes, looks like. Um, what purpose? For the remission of sins. The word for has been a very controversial word. You wouldn't think so looking at it in English, would you? F-O-R, it's a pretty common word. It's the word ice in, in the original. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I know a little bit about it. And I know this. It also has three letters, E-I-S. It's found 1,173 times in the New Testament. It is never translated, not even one time, because of it means in order to obtain. It's the same thing it means in Matthew 26, 28, when Jesus said that he was going to shed his blood for the remission of sins. Did Jesus shed his blood because sins were already remitted? No, in order that, the, that sins might be remitted. What does it mean in Acts 2, 38? Same thing. Be baptized for what purpose? The remission of sins. That word remission is fairly common today. We use it as a medical term most of the time. Its primary meaning here is not medical. It's financial. We also use it in this sense. You ever get a bill in the mail that says, please remit by, you know, October 1st. Remit, same word. It means to have a debt canceled have a debt paid. Now, what, what this is saying is that when we sin, we are accumulating a debt with God. I don't, you know, in Matthew 18, it's compared to a 10,000 talent debt, which is the max number in, under the Roman system. So it must be a lot. Whatever it is, and however much it is, how much it varies from person to person, However much a person needs, that's how much remittance he receives. So we're baptized for the purpose of having sins forgiven. Um, they were not forgiven when they believed, were they? Have you noticed this in your Bible? Drop down to verse... Verse 40. This is after they believed and they asked the question... What shall we do? Because they believed. Now verse uh, 40 says, And with many other signs, truly, uh, many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves. Not you've already been saved. Save yourselves. You see? And we don't save ourselves in the sense that we earn it or merit it. What we do is, Jesus throws us the lifeline. We're drowning in sin. Are we going to take the lifeline? Are we going to call upon the name of the Lord by doing what it is that He asks us to do? That's how we call upon His name. 
All right, that's all the time we have on that. Let's go to the next one, John 4, 24. So we're moving into our third category. We've talked about Jesus, first four verses. We've talked about the church, second two verses. Now let's talk about Christianity or Christian living. How do I live after baptism before death? After I become a follower of Jesus until Jesus takes me home, how am I supposed to behave? Well, that's the, most of the New Testament, as I saw in our introduction. But let's just uh, sum, sum it in uh, four verses. We'll start here in John 4, 24. This is Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. And she has a question for him, and he answers it. And in that context, we won't take time to explain all that, but just drop down to verse 23. But the hour cometh, he says... In other words, what I just told you is the way it is right now, but it's all about to change. Why? The kingdom of heaven is not at hand. The, the church is about to begin. So what I just told you is the way it is right now, but let me tell you what's about to happen in your lifetime very soon. The hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. I don't know that enough emphasis has been placed on that last phrase. Is Sunday night important? Well, I don't know. I went this morning, had the Lord's Supper. And, you know, I don't know. Maybe if I don't have anything else going, I'll go Sunday. Ask that question and then read John 4, 23. What do you give somebody who has everything? I mean, God has everything, literally. The cattle on a thousand hills. The hills under a thousand cattle. I mean, he owns it all. But he, there's one thing he doesn't have. He doesn't have my worship unless I give it. And he wants it. It's not like he's indifferent to it. It's not like it doesn't matter to him. He seeks it. He desires it. And I can put a smile on the face of God with my song, with my attention to his word, with my heart bowed in prayer. Verse 24, this is the whatever number we're on, the next verse on our list. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The first responsibility of one who becomes a Christian is to worship God acceptably. Now, let's look at this verse and analyze it. God, that's the aim of worship. When we come in here, it's not about us. It's about him. You say, well, I like this. Well, that's fine, as long as God likes it. <laughs> as long as the scriptures say to do it. But it's not about what I like. It's about Him. What does He want? He's the aim of worship. We aim not to come in here and have a smile as we leave worship, although we typically do, but leave with His face glowing from what he's heard and witnessed and received from us. God is a spirit and they that worship. That's the action. So aim and action. I'll least start with an A. Aim and action. We, we may think of worship as a passive experience. And it is true that we all come in and we sit down and you know, we're not active. Except the preacher, you know. In the old days, they used to have a cord. And preachers had a cord, his mic. And uh, he, he was pretty animated. And the little girl said, what's going to happen if he gets loose? You know? <laughs> well, well, most of us aren't active during worship on the outside. But worship is a verb. 
We're, we, better be act, we better be engaged mentally, of course. Uh, must, that's the absolute of worship. It's not left up to us. It's a must. It's an obligation. Must worship Him in spirit, that's the attitude, and in truth, that's the authority. Now, there are three, thus, three prerequisites to true worship. You cannot have true worship without these three things. Not with two of them, not with one, not, not with one or two of them, I have to have all three. It has to be to God. It has to be with the right attitude. And it has to be according to the right authority. In other words, everything that we do in worship must have a book, chapter, and verse to support doing it. That's how God expresses His, His authority to us. It's written in the will of His Son. So we read it. And uh, Acts 2.42, Ephesians 5.19 give us the five items of worship. Four of them in that one verse, Acts 2.42, and singing added Ephesians 5.19. And if we had time, we'd look at all those. But we don't, so let's go to Matthew. No, let's go to Titus. <clears throat> let's go in a logical order. Titus 2, the second responsibility of Christianity is to live a holy life. There is great emphasis placed in the New Testament upon holiness. Now, holiness, by definition, means separation. So if I'm going to be holy to God, then I have to be separated from the sins of the world. That doesn't mean that I live in a monastery on a mountain somewhere. And I, no, sin can find you there. It's not about the location. It's about my relationship to the world. Um, there are, you know, I guess because of COVID, you know, we have, we have uh, trays that we use for the Lord's Supper the bread and for the fruit of the vine and the giving. Well, the giving is not the Lord's Supper, but let's take the other two. And uh, they're not used for any other purpose. I mean, I don't guess it'd be a sin for the kids to get up here and play with them somehow, but I guarantee you the parents would get onto them if they did, when they, if they caught them. And no, no, that's for the, that's for the worship. That's, that's what those are for. Well, they had, in, like in the Old Testament, they had the same kind of thing in the in the temple. He said, preacher, you lost me. What are you talking about? Okay, here's the point. Those vessels are sanctified. They're set apart for a holy use. That's what that word means. Now, when I become a Christian, I am sanctified. I am set apart for holy uses, for God's service. I'm His servant, but I have to have holy hands. 1 Timothy 2, 8, which hands stand for the body, a holy lifestyle. So with all that background, Titus 2, 12, this is about God's grace, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. So there's the, the negative. You're going to plant a garden, you've got to clean out the field first, right? Dig up the bushes, get the rocks out of there, you've got to clean the field. Well, the same thing is true in a life. We've got to clean up the life, get rid of the bad things. But it's not enough to be a, a neutral you know, get rid of the bad and be nothing. No, you got to add the good and be something. And that's the next part of the verse. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Soberly has to do with responsibilities to self. Righteously has to do with responsibilities to others. And godly has to do with responsibilities to God. And you could... You could go through really the whole New Testament and make you know, three columns and put everything under one of those. 
And that would be a great sermon, but we don't have time for it tonight. Let's go to Matthew 8, uh, 28 for our next one. And verse 19. We quoted verse 18 earlier, All authority hath been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then the next 49 words are some of the most important words ever spoken. They're the last words in Matthew that Jesus ever spoke before he went back to heaven. So last words are of interest to us and typically are important words. Certainly they are here. Jesus said, I'll read it with you. Verse 19 is our, one of our 12 verses, the next of our 12. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. In the name there means into a relationship with. It's interesting that when Jesus was baptized, Matthew 3, 13 through 17, God acknowledged him as his son. Do you remember? He did not acknowledge him as his son at the cradle or the manger. He did not acknowledge him at his bar mitzvah, Luke 2, who became a son of the law, 12 years old. He acknowledged him when he was 30 years old at his baptism. Now, God doesn't do anything by accident, of course. There's purpose to it. So what's the purpose of that? When Jesus was baptized, God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. What does that indicate? He has a relationship, son. When you are baptized, I'm, I'm baptized, and I come out of the water, God acknowledges me as his son or as his daughter into a relationship with. John 3, 3 through 5 would be parallel with this. <clears throat> Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even on the end of the world. I just say this in passing, I really wanted to expound it with you, but circle the word all. There are four of them in these two verses, including always. Just circle the first two letters of that, and that's a great sermon in itself. Four alls of the Great Commission. But what this is telling us is that I have a responsibility once I am saved from sin to save others, to go into all the world. This is not just for preachers, not just for elders, not just for missionaries. This is for every Christian to, to go into his world, her world, neighborhood, street, state, nation, wherever it is that we may travel on business or vacation, whatever opportunities we have to take the good news with us. And we've got a lifetime to do that, to bring others to know someone taught us, how do you pay them back? You can never pay that debt back. To them, you pay it to somebody else. You teach them. The next one is Revelation 2.10. And I'll just quote the last part of it. It says, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. No doubt in the context he's talking about, if they arrest you and put you in prison, you be faithful to that point. If they strip you of your clothes and beat you on your back, you be faithful to that point. If they confiscate all your belongings and fine you for being a Christian, you be faithful to that point. And if they put you on a cross and kill you, you'd be faithful to that point. Thankfully, we don't live in a part of the world in a time in history when that has been, we've been called upon to endure that. It may come. So be faithful until death.
or unto death, whichever happens. Some people are Christians for just a short time. I could tell you about some that were Christians very short time. And I look forward to seeing them in heaven, snatched from the fire as it were. And then there are others who are baptized young and live a long life and they're Christians a long time, but it really doesn't matter. Be faithful from the point of your conversion to the point of your exit. That's the responsibility of Christianity. Now we close with our last two. <clears throat> Matthew 25, 32. There are two chapters that we call the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25. The key word of the whole sermon is come, and next time you read it, underline that word, come, came, coming. You'll see it all over the page. But in the, in the second of those chapters, chapter 25, he talks about the judgment. And this is the beginning of eternity. It begins with the judgment day. So Matthew 25, 32 says, well, let's read 31 and 32. When the Son of Man shall come, there's a key word, in his glory. The first time he came disguised, next time he'll come and everybody will see him and worship him. And all the holy angels with him. Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Can you picture that scene? Now here's our key verse. And before him, sitting on the throne with his angels around, shall be gathered all nations. There's about 204 nations on the earth right now. I have no idea how many nations there have been or will be, but I know how many of them will be before that throne. 204 right now and all the others, every one, and every citizen in every nation. What's the biggest crowd you've ever been in? It won't, it won't even compare, will it? Maybe you've been to a Texas A&M football game. How many does that stadium hold? Or, or UT? Like Alabama holds uh, Tuscaloosa Stadium has about 102,000, I guess. It's a lot of people. You know, I've sat there thinking, boy, I wish at halftime I could preach. <laughs> you know, wouldn't it be something? Well, that's just a drop in the bucket of all the people that'll be there. And you'll be there, that's really the point. And I'll be there. And I'll have my turn, you'll have your turn. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one. I circle the word all and the word one, because it shows both aspects. Everybody's there but everybody has a turn. One from another, as the shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. So the sheep and the goats got mixed up in the pasture and they're brought into the sheep, toward the sheepfold and the shepherd uses his stick and he turns the goat away, you know that, and turns the sheep into the fold. I guess I got that backwards. You know, left for the goats and right for the sheep. Judgment day is going to do that. Everybody comes up, books are opened, judgment's made. You know, that's a scary thing. And it's a thing to anticipate. For, for a person who is not ready for Judgment Day, you can try to hide in the back of the crowd, but you'll be found. There's no pleading the fifth. There's no insane plea. There's, I mean, someone who's insane here will be welcome there, but there's no sane person that can say, well, I'm not responsible. 
or my parents did me wrong or the culture I lived in. No. This is the judgment standard, not people. No excuses. And then those words, the mysterious words are depart from me. You don't have an appeals court. Who would you appeal to? It's final. It's, it's forever. And the best words are, enter in. And that's, that's the only two judgments you have. There's no middle ground like, oh, I don't want to be here. Send me back to earth. There's no earth. It's burned up. There's only two places, heaven or hell. And I'll be in one of them forever. I said it was scary. That's the scary part. The good part is 1 Corinthians 4, 5, which says that every man shall have praise of God. The last part of it. Have you ever just sat and thought about that? As unworthy and undeserving as any of us is? God's going to say, this is my child right here. She endured a lot. This is my child. He preached the gospel for 50 years. He served as an elder for 45 years. He, she led her friend to Christ. Let me tell you about her. That's judgment. Wow. And then number 12 is John 14, 3, where Jesus tells us that He's gone to prepare a place for us and He will come again, that where He is, there we may be also. And that's our invitation tonight. Do you want to go where Jesus is? Anybody can go. Anybody can go. It does not matter if you have an education or not. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're one skin color or another. It doesn't matter if you've done a lot of bad things or you've never done many bad things. It really doesn't matter what your background is. It only matter what your future is. And in Christ, the future is bright. Outside of Christ, the future is too horrible to contemplate. And the invitation is open tonight. Not just right now when we sing a song. That's about three minutes. That's a really good time to respond to it. And we hope you will if you need to. But the invitation is always open until God sends Jesus back. Matthew 25, 10, and the door was shut. It'll never open again. That's the door of opportunity. Right now it's open. And so you're invited to come. If you need to become a Christian, if you need to be restored as a Christian, we've talked about what to do in both cases. Once you come, we'll stand while we sing.